Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 490 of the podcast and it is Friday 22nd of May 2020 as I record this on day 60 of lockdown here in the UK and I guess some things have relaxed, we're kind of officially a little bit relaxed (laughs) but we're still behaving in the same way and you still can't go out and uh, go out for breakfast or anything or go to a bookshop or anything. So I'm still counting it as lockdown. So today I'm talking about the craft of writing with Will Store, and we're particularly focusing on how character flaws shape story, how cause and effect are so important and why specificity in writing is critical. Now I've always struggled with this idea of the flawed character. I think so often it's it's a cliche and it's not effective. Um, my characters are certainly not perfect and they have flaws. But the way that Will talks about this really helped me understand how flaw can drive plot. So I know you're going to enjoy the interview. And in fact, even if you don't write fiction, you might discover something about yourself along the way, since this is all human nature after all. So in publishing news, uh, things are starting to open up. So German booksellers are reopening shops and the bookseller.com uh, reports uh, from the front line of reopening a bookstore. They talk about compulsory masks, floor markings and warning tape, which I think we're all used to now with supermarkets uh, having the warning tape. And there are walking routes, there are specific waiting lines, specific uh, entry and exit doors. Again, all what certainly where I am, that's what happens in the supermarket. Protective shields at tills. I think we've all got used to that. And uh, lots of hand sanitizer. But what's interesting to me is when I think about, so at the moment, you know, I, I and I get shopping delivered mostly, but when I do go to a, um, a grocery store, I'm really careful because if you pick something up, you can't really put it down again because people look at you like, what are you doing? Uh, obviously, if you're wearing gloves, I, I guess that's fine, but you still could have touched something with your gloves. So this sort of uh, policing of behaviour, I, I, I'm very sensitive to it. I don't know because I'm British, but the sort of disapproving looks you get if you pick something up and put it down again. And that's fair enough in a supermarket. I mean, uh, and most of the time, I'm, you know, if I'm picking up this packet of something, then I'm, I'll put it in my basket. That's fine. But in a bookstore, when you You go into a bookstore and you might pick up loads of books and you might walk out with one or two or three, maybe five, (laughs) but you will definitely not buy every book you pick up. And the whole design of a book is that you see the cover and then you pick it up and you have to turn it over to read the back of a physical book. So I just... I just can't see how that's going to be possible unless they uh, have gloves. And if you think about this uh, hand sanitizer being plentiful, the problem with hand sanitizer, of course, is that it does leave this sort of wet residue and uh, the ones with the high alcohol content, which are the ones you're meant to use, they do kind of remain on your fingers. So I kind of see this future in the bookstore where there's the books will get wet from hand sanitizer or they will say you have to wear gloves and... But 
So I, I just have my doubts that this is going to work in a physical bookstore. I think it will be difficult. Um, so we, we shall see. But this report does say that the lockdown hit German booksellers hard. I mean, Germany is a very big book market, huge number of readers. And they said um, bricks and mortar book sh- bookshops were down 30% in March and 46.9% in April. So like heading towards 50% in April, which is uh, difficult. So May, I guess, is going to be similar uh, opening up towards the end of May. So we shall see, but I'm, I'm really interested to consider how it might work, how browsing might work in a physical bookstore. And again, I think because of the texture of books, you know, I imagine uh, that will be harder. So we will see. And also I was wondering about secondhand bookstores. Is this the end? Because uh, how many people are going to want secondhand books and pick up things in that way? Uh, And again, it's not that I don't believe people will ever want these things again. It's like the more the question is, how long can we last until people's behaviour goes back to what it was or maybe it it has changed um, for good around physical uh, browsing. So there's definitely a behaviour change ramification for those types of markets, you know, vintage stores, secondhand shops. It'd be interesting to see how that works. But of course, good news with online. I mean, everyone's reporting that online sales are up. So that's good. Uh, Okay, so I also wanted to bring up this thing I that Facebook have launched, basically, they've launched shops in the last week to bring more business online during the pandemic. A major, as reported in The Verge, uh, a major new push into e-commerce will bring an Instagram shopping tab, shoppable live streams and more, which made me think of, you know, the sort of uh, the bookstagrammers instead of showing their nice pictures, they'll be like those uh, TV show channels. <laughs> TV shopping channels. (laughs) Like, here is the book for today and click now under the link, you know. Um, But basically, they've got um, integration. So the shops will be powered by third party services, including Shopify, Big Commerce, and Woo, uh, designed to turn the social network into a top tier shopping destination. Shops are free to create, but with Facebook, you can integrate advertising, payments and other services. Businesses will be able to buy ads for their shops. And when people use Facebook's checkout option, it charges them a fee. So this is Facebook getting into web commerce. So could this be something that might challenge Amazon? Who knows? But with Shopify and these other services, you can actually integrate physical products. So you could sell physical books this way. Um, But essentially, this is going to be the same as Amazon in that you're not going to get your customer data, but presumably you can pixel it so you can actually do retargeting. I think this is very interesting. Now, I've had the shop section on my Facebook pages for years where you can just put up a pit, you know, your book cover, the price and a link out to another place. But this is a native shopping experience within Facebook. So I'm very interested to see how this will be used. I think authors will definitely use this for more direct sales. This is an iteration of direct sales. So if you are publishing wide, you can you will be able to use this for your uh, ebooks and your audiobooks. And uh, regardless, you can use it for print books. So very interesting, I think. So that is Facebook Shops.
In my personal update, very happy Map of the Impossible uh, second draft done. And when I say draft, I, it's difficult the word draft because some people do complete rewrites. I don't do complete rewrites. But after that big first pass, I had to rewrite the ending. It definitely needed to be stronger. Uh, I have done that and redone some of the timeline. I had got myself into a pickle with timelines. All my characters were meant to converge on this particular place and I would got my timelines all wrong. So I had to recut a number of chapters and change the weather and stuff like that, change night to day and things like that in that big second pass. And then this week I reread the whole book and just did minor updates, minor line edits. So very happy with it now. It has gone to uh, my story editor, Jen, who is my sort of first reader and uh, helped me with any any of that. Then, um, and yes, <laughs> I said last week I put the pre-order up. The problem when I record things in advance like this is that I assume I'm going to do it and then... <laughs> And then I don't. But I actually have submitted pre-orders now. So hopefully that will all be up. I've also organised a ton of promo on Map of Shadows for the first week of June. And what I've decided is that I'm going to finish this as a trilogy. So I will write more books in the Map Walker world, but I'm going to make this the Map Walker trilogy. And then if I write more books in the world, I'll call them Map Walker universe novels or something like that, so that they're in a different series. Because I was listening to the wonderful Lindsay Baroka, who spoke at the Career Author Summit last weekend, which was obviously all online. It was not in Nashville, which was a shame. But uh, Lindsay talked about how fantasy writers like to have a finished trilogy or finished series, and then a lot more readers will commit to it. So I'm going to go back into the metadata and make it clear that it's a trilogy. And then... I'll be able to market those books as as a as a trilogy as such and then later on do more in that world. So uh, the plan this week is to get lots of admin done that has been piling up while I've been focusing on the novel and to start on my author business plan course, which lots of you have emailed me about and lots of you are looking forward to that. So that is coming up. Uh, this week, I also posted the transcript of the Facebook Live that I did the other week. Um, so that's got timestamps as well on the blog and the YouTube channel, plus a discussion I did with Orna Ross on the most useful tools for writers. And I know we're all always looking for the best tools. I really feel quite happy with the tools I have now. But as I discussed with Orna, we're always changing, always shifting when new great things come along. So both of those uh, links in the show notes or just go to thecreativepen.com blog and you'll find those articles. Also, as part of my revamping JF Pen and my fiction brands, I am revisiting advertising. Now, and this is partly what Orna and I discussed and also coming up next week, which I'll come back to. But uh, essentially next week, I am interviewing Mark Dawson and ask him all the questions I want to ask about revamping my brand. And you just get to listen in. <laughs> but um, what's interesting is with advertising, like I mentioned, Facebook, I've been doing Facebook ads for years, uh, BookBub ads, uh, you know, they've recently changed to include audiobooks. And everything we do needs to be re-looked at every now and then, especially when you've been doing it things a decade like I have. It's time to revisit a lot of things and go, okay, what can I do differently? And um, 
that more detail on that next week. But one of the things I'm revisiting is advertising and sort of going back through, having a look at how things have changed. So um, I am also really excited about the webinar I've got coming up with Mark Dawson, but it's actually going to be presented by Janet Margot, who has worked at Amazon Advertising for years. Um, It will cover the six secrets to Amazon ad success. So join us Thursday, 11th of June, 4pm US Eastern, 9pm UK. You can register for free at thecreativepen.com forward slash 11 June, so 1-1 June and uh, links in the show notes. So I'm definitely interested in that. It's going to be, I'm just revamping everything right now. I'm revisiting a lot of the basics, you know, covers, sales pages, um, even things like categories. Like on a lot of my books, I haven't changed the categories or the keywords for for years. (laughs) So I'm going back and redoing those. Uh, I mean, this never stops people. And yes, sometimes it can be a bit tiring to consider the amount of work. But to be honest, the amount of work gets bigger the more books you write (laughs) as well. So I really want to streamline a lot of what has got a little bit out of control over the years. Um, So that is my plan at the moment. Okay, so thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments from last week. Um, actually, oh, thanks to Joe for the comment. The podcast is brilliant uh, every week religiously. Thank you so much. Um, the interview with Matty Dalrymple was phenomenal, enlightening and inspirational. Um, I've decided to serialise it. Uh, so that's exciting. Pretty, please keep doing brilliant shows and giggling. <laughs> I will. Can't help it. That's just me. Uh, Thanks to Jenny for the lovely desert flower photos from Tucson, Arizona. And I actually visited that region back in the 90s and the biosphere made it into the climax of my thriller, Stone of Fire. Definitely plan to go back there one day and see if it lives up to my thriller memory. (laughs) Uh, Sean Lance uh, shared a picture of his cycling route. Looks lovely. Just one of my regular routes here in our corner of paradise, listening to the show for writerly know-how and inspiration. Great. Amy said, love the show this week. Larry has such a cool voice to listen to. And finally, Jeremy Richter says, between wanting control over my total product and talking about having multiple streams of income deriving from my books, I'm starting to feel like a fully fledged disciple of the creative pen. <laughs> That is so brilliant, Jeremy. You did make me laugh um, because, yeah, I mean, we all have our soapboxes, right? And mine is clearly multiple streams of income. Okay, so today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark, which is going gangbusters right now. I mean, there are some businesses that are really doing well out of the pandemic because they serve a need. And Ingram Spark is one of them as the whole publishing industry realises they need to get books into the print on demand market. So I use Ingram Spark for my wide print distribution. I use KDP Print for Amazon and do not check the extended distribution button. I then use Ingram Spark to get into libraries, bookstores, universities and other print online retailers. I also use them to do print on demand hardbacks, which you can't do any other way. And I really love um, having some hardbacks. I think it makes it look, uh, makes us look really professional to have different um, formats that people can use. Uh, So I will play a word from the lovely Robin from Ingram in a minute. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Uh, It means so much to me. And as I head towards 500 episodes and I go through my existential crisis of, do I really want to do another 100 shows? (laughs) 
<laughs> Your support on Patreon really helps. Thanks to new patrons, Chris, Chris Schwartz and Joseph N. Bearden. I really appreciate your support and you can support the show just a couple of dollars, uh, just a couple of dollars a month or a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous. You'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, including the backlist. And I did that uh, this week. So check that out. You can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Also, you get um, 10% off my courses if you're a patron. So even if you just want to buy one of my courses, it's worth being a, a patron just for a month. And also just to say that really important with Patreon, um, you know, you you can go in and out. It's not like you subscribe to support on Patreon and that's it forever. You can come in, support for a month or something and then go again. So completely up to you. There's no lock in or anything like that. Okay, here's a word from our sponsor and then we'll get into the interview. Are you ready to take that bold step forward and finally publish your book? Well, now's the time to do it. Hi, everyone. I'm Robin Cutler, director of Ingram Spark, an award-winning indie publishing platform that offers authors like you a way to publish your book and share it with over 39,000 bookstores and libraries worldwide. Knowledge is power, and we believe authors should be knowledgeable. That's why we offer education through our weekly blog and podcast featuring industry experts and even online courses on how to self-publish and market your books. Let us take care of the details so you can focus on what you do best, which is writing. You have a story to tell, and we want to help you share it. Get started today at www.ingramspark.com. Will Storr is an award-winning writer, the author of five critically acclaimed novels, a prize-winning journalist, an in-demand ghostwriter of best-selling books, and an international speaker on storytelling. Today, we're talking about his fantastic book, The Science of Storytelling. Welcome, Will. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. And I have your book here in hardback on my desk. I also have the audio book. It's that good. <laughs> Amazing. Double. Fantastic. <laughs> it, it is. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. Oh, I, I always wanted to be a, a writer. I don't know where it, really know where it came from in my family. But, you know, even when I was a kid, I was trying to write a novel when I was like eight years old. And then I came in kind of via journalism. Um, so so, so I, I, I kind of came in that way. Mm. And but you've done so many different kinds of writing. So what made you do so many different things? Well, I, I suppose I became a journalist because I didn't know what else to do. You know, like I, I think I started writing novels quite young and I didn't really understand how they worked. So I kind of gave up. <laughs> you know, I kind of failed my exams at school and then I, I left school. I didn't go to university and I worked in a local record shop and I, and, and I sort of began a, like a local magazine, a music magazine. And then I started interviewing bands and then so, and that turned into a job as a magazine journalist and then I moved into newspapers. And then, you know, and then I did write a novel. I kind of, I took about four or five years um, writing a novel. And, uh, and that's when the sort of my interest in, in the kind of secrets of storytelling in a way comes from, because, you know, I fell for that rubbish that people say that you, you ask authors, you know, how do you write? And they go, oh, the, the muse just descends 
and it just flows out of my genius fingertips onto the page. And I just don't believe that. I, I don't believe it's true. Like after I published my novel, I, I was on a, I remember being on, on stage at a literary festival and, and somebody asked that question to all the authors. And I was the only one that, that they all said, oh, you know, I just, the characters fill me up and then they just take me on these journeys. And I find that really hard to believe unless these people are just, you know, they've read so many millions of books that they're just sort of writing, they've, they've got learned by osmosis. You know, I, I didn't really kind of make it work until I'd, I, you know, I'd actually sort of learned some craft. Mm. It's funny you say that. I also know writers who swear they just take dictation. So, you know, they sit down and their characters take over. I'm also not like that. I'm, I'm like you. Yeah. <laughs> So perhaps there are people out there who do just do that, but most most of us it takes some work. So let's yeah, get in, yeah. I, I think there are, I think a lot of those people, as I say, they, they, they've they're these people that, that that can often and always, but you know they, they tend to be these people that can that somehow read three novels in a week, and you know and and they're absolutely voracious readers and have been all their lives, and I and I think that they're still writing using kind of craft as, as a foundation but they just don't realize they're doing it because it becomes it's like driving a car it becomes automatic you just learn this stuff and you, and you start behaving in that way without thinking either that or they're writing you know extremely high-end literary novels that just don't have a plot and don't need a plot and don't require a plot mm. yeah and I think being mindful of the story process is so important so let's get into the book and I've, I've pulled out uh, some quotes which uh, it's, I've underlined so much it's brilliant so first of all cause and effect is a fundamental of how we understand the world and we're, we're, you know I under, underline that because even though we know that it, it's something that's so important so how can we use cause and effect to build a better story well, it's one of those things, cause and effect. I think it's a really interesting kind of area. Like, you know, the whole book is based around the idea that the brain is a storyteller, and what what writers are doing um, is are kind of mimicking these neural processes. They're mimicking the way the brain creates our experience of being alive, in order to kind of create a fake experience of a fake character being alive. That's essentially the kind of the idea. And cause and effect is a real fundamental of, about how we about how humans experience kind of reality. You know, when something happens in our environment, we you know, we attend to it, we look at it, and then we ask the question, you know, what, what caused that and what's going to happen next? And we, we do that in a way that no other animals do, even chimpanzees, you know, very close relatives to us on the evolutionary tree. And so it's really important, I think, in storytelling to have that, to have that understanding that one, that, that, that one action from a character should trigger the next action, which triggers the next action, which triggers the next action, because we think in causes and effects. And what difficult writing does is it's not, it isn't like that, it's and then So there's this, oh, and then you need to know this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing. And they don't really feel that connected. There are just sort of things happening next to each other. And then we have to work out what are the causes and effects. And that's when people say, people sometimes call that kind of storytelling, it's hard work, they say. And it is hard work, and it's hard work because you're having to do the cognitive effort of tying those things together. And, it, you know, it's much more compelling storytelling you know, takes that on board. It has characters, you know, being the causes of the effects of the narrative. And it kind of seems obvious, but but it's actually in practice quite hard to do. And, and but, but I think when you really think, you know, when you're writing, it's that process of, okay, so this has happened. How, how can I make everything that happens in this chapter, for example, a, a product of the decisions that the characters are making and to have as few as possible incidents that are happening just because they have to happen? Everything possible should happen as, as a result of, not only the way the characters are thinking and behaving, but way, ways that the characters are thinking and behaving that are characteristic of who they are. You know, so, so, so I, I think that's the thing. And, it, and it's been really rigorous about trying to have everything 
all the events in the drama that happens being a cause of the you know of, of the character's character uh, i think i think there's huge opportunities sort of for, for, you know for creating drama when you're when, when you're kind of working out those kind of chapters it's just trying to you know how, how can we to say how can we how can we how can we make all, everything that happens in that top level of the drama um, how can how can we kind of show that being a, um, a product of the interesting kind of damaged flawed characters that we're trying to explore Mm. And well, let's go into that damaged, flawed there, <laughs> because <laughs> I feel that there are obviously there are books where there's no damage, no flaws, just cardboard cutouts. But then there are also books where they're kind of obvious cliche damage yeah. and flaws. So how how do we give our characters depth, but without becoming cliched, alcoholic, you know, policemen <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> well, I really think that the answer to this is absolute specificity. You know, when, when I'm teaching, it's, it's really, that, that's the main thing I'm doing, even in the week-long course, is going over and over again on who is your character and how can we, before we do anything else, define their flaw with absolute precision so it's precise. So it's not just, oh, you know, because what, what people always say is, tell me about your, your character. What's their flaw? How do you describe their flaw? And, and, and for some reason, most of them would say, oh, they're very controlling. And, and that's not good enough because, you know, you can be controlling in a million different ways. Everyone's controlling. Everyone's trying to control stuff. How are they controlling? So it's making that extra leap. And, and, that, and, and that's when you get sort of the really interesting stuff. And people say things like, how do they try and control the world? And it could be, oh, well, they try and tell kind of tall stories or they try and, you know, impress people with, with a kind of certain strategy. And what you're, what you're trying to get to is, is a kind of a, a, a flaw that's specified and precise enough. So you can then imagine your character behaving in any particular situation. So in the book, I, you know, as I was writing the book, it was all during that awful Brexit stuff. And uh, there was all this chat about Theresa May. And I read this profile of Theresa May uh, when everything had gone wrong under her kind of watch. And somebody who knew her said, oh, you know, Theresa May's problem is she always thinks she's the only adult in every room she goes into. I just thought, that is brilliant. That is exactly what we're talking about. Because if you define someone's flaw that, with that precision... They always think that they're, they're, they're the adult in every kind of situation they walk into. You can take that Theresa May character and put her in any kind of genre, kind of story, any kind of literary story, and you can imagine how she's going to behave. And that's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to we're trying to get to a character that just comes alive in your imagination, and that really comes with that kind of precise thinking. It's the the, the vague thinking. Oh, they're an alcoholic. They're a bit sad. Their mum didn't love them. None of that is good enough. So. It's a tough one because I feel like that can lead us to potentially very internal writing, whereas a lot of listeners, I certainly, I write thrillers, Mm. so I do need a lot of external action as such. So how can a flaw lead us to action in a plot as well as interior struggle and conflict? Well, because the flaw, the action is the stuff that's going to directly cure the flaw. So if you know what your action is going to be, then you kind of reverse engineer it and go, okay, so what kind of person with what kind of flaw, what kind of problem, what problem would be solved by this action, which I'm going to design? So a good example, because, you know, you're right. Obviously, storytelling all exists on this huge spectrum. And, you know, characters have a variety of kind of levels of depth, depending on the kinds of story that you're going to tell. But even, you know, broad, thrillery, action-filled stories tend to revolve around a, a character flaw. So in Jaws, for example, you know, two million selling book and, you know, classic film, 
that's based around this guy Brody and his flaw is very simple flaw. He's scared of the water. You know, we, we find out in that, in, in that book and in that film that he has this absolute childhood dread of the water. And to such an extent that when he gets the car ferry over to the beach community that he, he, he lives in, he stays in it. He can't even get out of his car. But he's absolutely terrified of water. He thinks if he goes anywhere in the water, he's going to die. He's the, he, he's a police chief in, in charge of the security of a coastal town. And then crash bang wallop a great white shark arrives and starts eating everybody so that action all of that action around that shark is specifically designed to force brody to confront his phobia his flaw his fear of the water and cure it and that and, and the whole plot is structured around that around that flaw so you know it begins with the shark comes halfway through the midpoint he he finally gets the courage to go into the water and then the very final scene in the film it isn't the shark blowing up. It's Brody swimming back to the water. And the last bit of the dialogue before it fades to black is him saying, oh, I used to be scared of the water. I can't imagine why. So even Jaws, which is all, you know, 98% action, 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 <laughs> is actually structured around a character with a character flaw. That is a great example. I love that example. That is, that is fantastic. <laughs> so the, you've got th- so some interesting things there in terms of flaws. I, I mean, I'm now standing here thinking of my characters and my character flaws. And one of the things I think is that research, because we often tend to think about flaws that we might have ourselves. <laughs> and certainly my main character in my Arcane series, she shares some of my flaws. <laughs> but what is a good way to research different flaws to make our characters more original rather than, as you say in the book, with bolt on quirks, which I, I like that phrase. <laughs> it's about that precision. And it's just about looking out for stuff, you know, like, like that Theresa May one was just something I, I, I read in a newspaper and it kind of leapt out of me. That's a really great description of a flaw of a very specific character that you could turn into any kind of character. I was watching a South Bank show recently with, it was interviewing Arthur Miller and uh, what's his name, was asking him about the, the Willie Loman play Death of a Salesman. And he was talking about character and he said his, his, his idea was that he, he just believes in success in that capitalistic success and that idea that when you die you're going to be weighed on a scale just like god used to weigh for sin now you're weighed for success and i just that you know that is exactly what we're talking about and you could take that idea that that, that you're, i'm absolutely obsessed with success and being weighed on that scale and you could take that and apply it to any kinds of character in any kind of story because it has that level of specificity so it's just being on the lookout for these once you are on the lookout for them, be brazen about taking them because you're not you're not stealing from Arthur Miller by taking that idea and adapting it into your own story. You're not stealing from Theresa May by taking her one <laughs> and, and, and putting it into one of your characters. So I think it's just it's just sort of being on the lookout. And, it, and even in your personal life, in your family life, what, what, what is it about this person that upsets me or winds me up or that they keep getting wrong? If I could really define it in a specific way, how, how would I define it and, and then you get this kind of nice collection of potential kind of characters that are encoded in these in, in these very specific ideas and the kind of magical thing about this at least when i'm sort of working through it in my workshops is that they start off with these just sort of one or two line sentence you know lines on a bit of paper but but when you run these ideas through all the demands of a of a really gripping relentless plot they become incredibly complex um, an incredibly nuanced and incredibly original. So it's this kind of weird paradox where you start off with this quite reductive but specific idea. 
but you end up with really complex and original characters in a way that you don't end up with complex and original characters when you start off with vague with vague stuff about alcohol you know like oh they're an alcoholic detective inspector or whatever you know (laughs) another one because where do you go with that you can't imagine that you know i I can imagine an alcoholic detective inspector in lots of scenes and they're glowering and they're grumpy and that's what we get every time we watch a scandy scandy (laughs) thriller it's the same character you know it's it's being precise another thing that happens when i'm teaching is that a a character i is quite vague alcoholic detective inspector but they have too many they they begin with too many different ideas they're this and this and this and this and again Again, it's that I think that vague thinking about characters is really the enemy because it's easy to think that if I give lots of ideas to my character, then that's going to add up to a complex character. But actually, the opposite is true, weirdly. Mm, no, that's great. So coming back to drama, which you mentioned before, the dramatic question. So what <laughs> what is the dramatic question and why is it so important? If there is such a thing as the, you know, a secret of great storytelling, I really think it's this. It goes back to you know, the very roots of storytelling in the psychological sciences is the current theory of why humans evolve language is to swap social information. So, you know, we, we, we're these apes that live in these highly cooperative tribes and we've, we've worked out how to kind of divide labor and communicate and, and work as teams. And that's how we've dominated the world. But in order to do that, you need to con- sort of control people. So we evolved language in order to basically swap gossip they'll gossipy stories about each other and then if people came out off badly in these gossipy stories they'd be punished and if they came off well they'd be celebrated and that's how we kept our tribes running gossip lies at the lies at the very roots of why we even speak let alone the roots of storytelling and if you think about storytelling any kind of storytelling whether it's a little news piece about Meghan Markle or it's Anna Karenina or whatever or it's Jaws even there's a kind of gossipy element to that stuff even with Jaws oh he's a He's, a, he's, a, he's in charge of this beach community and he's scared of water, you know, oh my God. And so the fundamental purpose of story is to work out who is this character? You know, when, when the chips are down, when their back's really against the wall, who are they? Are they a good person? Are they a bad person? Are they flawed? And if they're flawed, how are they flawed? And are they going to fix that flaw? So that's the dramatic question for me. It's who is this character? Who are they? It's really fundamental to great storytelling because it's fundamental to gossip which is what kind of all storytelling kind of leans towards and i i I think that once you've i I think that's why i like to start off with that idea of that flaw because then the that dramatic question gets sort of turned into not just are they a good person are they a bad person but what is their flaw and are they going to fix it so every single dramatic really dramatic scene in jaws um is asking that dramatic question of brody it's saying is he going to be the old Brody, which who's scared of water? And sometimes he's terrified. He regrets going out to sea. He panics. Or is he going to be big enough to overcome that flaw and destroy that shark? So the most dramatic scenes in Jaws are the ones that are specifically asking that dramatic question. Who is he? Is he old Brody or new Brody? Good or bad? Weak or strong? It's about the kind of understanding that that's the real gold of storytelling. That's what have people, I think people really sort of moved and entertained in a, in, in a really profound way. That, that kind of pure action does, often doesn't get to. Mm. And you, you give a really good example of Lawrence of Arabia in the book, which even if people haven't seen, I think everyone now has that picture in their head yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, of him in his outfit. Yes. <laughs> but maybe just talk a bit about that one, because I found that a really powerful example. 
Yeah, so Lawrence of Arabia is a really good example of, say, if you've not seen the film or you've not seen it for a while, it's a three-hour film, but but in my class, I've, I've actually edited it down to a 16-minute 16 16-minute 16 <laughs> version, which just focuses on that dramatic question. And so what happens at the beginning of Lawrence of Arabia is you, is you meet this kind of very naive, fey, cocky, arrogant young soldier who's kind of showing off, put, putting a match out with his fingertips and refusing to salute to his sergeant major or whoever it is and being sarcastic. So you get the sense of this flaw, which is somebody who is really believes that he's kind of, he's, he's this cocky rebel and, and he thinks he's better than everybody else because he's got this cocky, this kind of rebelliousness. So that's fine. You know, that's his flawed character. But then what happens is you take that flawed character, that character that believes that, that my kind of rebelliousness makes me superior, makes me extraordinary, and you put them in a war situation. That is a kind of situation that's perfectly designed to test that idea. And that's what you see in Lawrence of Arabia. Most sort of gripping, iconic scenes are asking that dramatic question. And that dramatic question in, in this context is, who are you, Lawrence? Are you ordinary or are you extraordinary? And sometimes in the film, he believes he's extraordinary when he single-handedly leads, you know, le- leads the Arabs into battle against the against the Kurds and is hailed as this god. He believes that he's extraordinary, and he, and he gets and, and and it feeds that flawed idea, and he becomes, you know, monstrous in his idea that he's extraordinary. But then other things happen, like you know, he's forced to kill somebody, he loses somebody down in some quicksand, and then he realizes that actually, I'm actually just ordinary. He tries to quit the army and then the army people go no no you can't quit you're extraordinary and he goes actually you're right i'm extraordinary and then what you see if you if you, if you look at it in, in terms of these fundamentals is that lawrence of Arabia is basically the whole plot is asking that question it's all revolving around that simple dramatic question are you ordinary or are you extraordinary and because it's a, a tragedy he doesn't overcome his flaw he just believes he's more and more extraordinary until he becomes a monster he becomes this kind of a, a homicidal maniac and towards the end we see it that very iconic scene where he lifts the bloody dagger and he looks at his reflection in, in, in it with horror as if he's saying, you know, what have I become? Mm. My feeling with the book and what you're talking about with, with characters is that a lot of writers can come up with a plot and come up with characters to put in a plot. (laughs) But what you're talking about is to tie the two together. So Lawrence of Arabia and Jaws, as you say, have both got a lot of action. They've got fight scenes and creatures and stuff, death going on. (laughs) But they are, as you say, at heart, they're about character. So I think those examples are really good at linking the two together. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the number one thing. Like, if there's one thing that the one problem that I wanted to solve with the book, which I see in in my classes over and over again, is, is exactly what you just said: is that the characters and the plots are unconnected. That's a really fundamental problem, and you even see the, that problem expressed. I mean, the big movies that get made and books that get published, you know, things that kind of, you know, pass the bar and, and uh, in that way. Uh, and I think that's a real shame because. A story should be like life. And in life, you know, the stories of our lives are, of course, intimately, they're they're not just connected to who we are as characters. They are a product of who we are as characters. So you can see that the goals of our lives are the plots of our lives and the obstacles that we overcome in order to try and achieve those goals are, are our stories. They're our narratives. But our goals and our obstacles are very often a product of who we are. You know, the things that we want in our life, the, 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 the things that we dream of achieving are a product of who we are. The obstacles that we encounter in our day to day lives, 
they tend to be the same problems over and over again because they're problems that stem from our personalities, from things we get wrong in the social world. Plot is a product of character. Plot comes out of character. Um, and plot tells us, you know, who, who the character is. One of, one of the ways I like to think about it is that, that the, you know, your plot is there. Your plot is designed specifically to plot against your character. So you've got this character with this particular flaw, you know, in the most simple sense, Brody, who's scared of water. And the plot is there to connect absolutely with that flaw and test it and test it and test it and keep testing it until, you know, they, they either change, they transform, or they like Lawrence of Arabia, don't change, actually sort of double down on their floor and just get worse and worse and worse and worse until they explode. (laughs) So I I love this idea, but I feel that it works for a standalone or in the film sense, just a a film rather than say a TV show. So many of us, I certainly, I'm going to write book 11 in a series scene and series characters, I mean, take Lee Child's Jack Reacher, for example, or James Bond, they have flaws, but they can't be resolved at the end of the episode or the end of the book because there has to be another book. And those yeah. are actually the best selling stuff out there at a series, you know. So how do we deal with that with a series rather than a standalone? You, yeah, you, you just don't cure them. You know, so, <laughs> so, so go really, really, really back to brass tacks. The, the way I think of it is what is a story? What is the minimal conditions to have a story? And for me, it's two things. You've got an external event, something that happens in the external world, but it happens to somebody and it changes them in some way. But it doesn't have to change them in, in a transformational way, like you get in an archetypal kind of hero story. It, it might just change the way they see the world. It might just change the mood that they're in. Take a Raymond Carver short story or a Kafka short story. That's all that happens often is that something happens to a flawed character and it, and it changes their perspective in a, in a certain way, in a certain almost undefined way that's kind of slightly moving. So uh, an episodic TV is, is, is no different. If you, if you think about a show like The Archers, which has been going for like 60 years, I think it's the longest running TV show, sorry, longest running kind of episodic story in the world. What happens in a show like The Archers in like a soap opera is you've got these flawed characters and these story events keep happening at them and they keep being thrown at them and they keep being tested. And they, and they might change in little ways, but they never really change completely. And then you just keep throwing story events at them again and again and again. And that's, that is an episodic TV show. So that's a soap opera. It's also a sitcom. If you think about you know the classic sitcom characters, whether they're Fleabag or David Brent or Basil Fawlty, they don't change. And actually... The, the fact of they're not changing is, is a source of the comedy. But what does happen is that every episode, a new story event is thrown at them. A new thing is, is thrown at them that tests their floor, exposes their floor. And because it's not like a you know 90-minute Hollywood movie or a standalone novel, they don't go through this big transformational thing. But they do change. They, they do, they, they, even if it's a, a kind of a very kind of shallow cha- you know, change, not necessarily a personality change, it does cause them to kind of enact their flaws in that way. So, so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Of course, you know, James Bond never transforms, but I don't think transformation is 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 a prerequisite of, of storytelling. And I, I, as you, you know, rightly say, it, 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 it would be death to episodic TV because <laughs> you'd have nowhere to go. Uh, unless you have, um, like Game of Thrones, so many characters. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That you can do all these different things and yeah. Well, so you transform them and kill them and then bring another one in. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. I think that's it. I, I, one of the things that I wanted to do, like when I've read lots of other books about storytelling, one of my kind of problems with them is that, is that I felt like a lot of them are very prescriptive and they say, 
this is a story and this isn't a story. And if you haven't got these elements, then it's not a story. And I just think that's crazy. You know, there are so many different kinds of storytelling and they're all as valid as each other. To me, Love Island is as valid an example of storytelling as anything by, you know, Tolstoy. It's all storytelling. It's story events happening to flawed characters and we enjoy seeing them react. Oh, that is such a great example because um, I swore I would never watch Love Island. And then my <laughs> sister said, oh, no, you've got to watch this, you know, because I want to talk about it. This is last summer. And yeah. I watched an episode and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so addictive. And you started yeah. by mentioning gossip. And, you know, Love Island is just gossip, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. But, but uh, let's see all storytelling is. And, and you know, I, when, when Big Brother was on, I was a massive fan of Big Brother. And I think, you know, because it is it's storytelling, you know, in back in the days of Charles Dickens, he would sort of put out these new episodes of his kind of gripping stories in the newspapers and people would be obsessed with them. And I just feel like Big Brother is just the modern and Love Island is the modern, you know, Charles Dickens is mass market storytelling. The producers are really smart and the editors are really smart. You know, they cast their characters. They see that they're flawed. They edit them in such a way to kind of amplify their flaws and define them by their flaws. And then they keep throwing story events at them. And in Love Island, you know, in Big Brother, it's the tasks. In Love Island, it's throwing in new characters to test their love, to test their commitment. And so, you know, it's storytelling. And, you know, it's you can condescend to it as much as you want, but it's incredibly successful storytelling. It's storytelling that, that, that kind of grips millions of literally millions of people every year and, and they and, and they turn it around in a day. You know, mm. they, they, you know, they, every day there's a new hour. So I really take my hats off to those people. And I, and I honestly, I, for me, there's no kind of enormous kind of binary categorical difference between what Love Island doing and to what to what novelists are doing. It's all story events happening to flawed characters. Do you think that TV has changed readers to want a different thing from books? And do you think the publishing industry is able to keep up with the way that TV and films and social media are changing, the way we expect storytelling, because it does seem to be much faster now. Yeah, I think it is faster. I think people are far less patient. It, it, you know, they, 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 they want to be, especially kind of post-internet, they need to be gripped and straight away. And, and that's really hard. I mean, you've only got to go back and read. I mentioned Charles Dickens. That, that was the Love Island of, of its day. But now it feels so slow. You know, like you're reading and you know, come on, stop describing this man's beard. You know, it's like, come on. So, you know, I think we're all a bit guilty of it. So I, I think people are really story hungry these days. They, they, they want stuff to happen straight away. And it, and it's led to that kind of slightly frustrating thing that happens on television where, especially in documentaries, where you turn on a TV show and they spend the first five minutes telling you everything's going to happen. And then they start. And it's like, oh, I, you, know, you know, because they're so worried about you. They're so concerned about telling you, don't worry, stuff's going to happen, that they kind of give away all the entire sequence of events before the opening credits. I think it, it is very real that people are becoming far more demanding in terms of the story. But, but, but it just means storytellers have to kind of up, up their game, really. And, and, and I think novelists, especially literary novelists, are the ones that are, going to be, that are becoming kind of most exposed by that, because I think there's a certain amount of self-indulgence in very literary storytelling, you know, spending six pages describing the interior of somebody's wardrobe or something like this. And I think that, that, that you're going to get away with that kind of stuff kind of less and less and less. Although that's that's a great example, because on the other hand, you've got Instagram stories where people are showing what's on their bookshelf or what's in their, their wardrobe. And actually, the story of the day might be what's inside someone's closet. But again, that feels like uh, gossip. 
It is. It's gossip. It's who is this? I mean, we, 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 you know, we're social animals. We're highly social animals. So we're always interested in what is going on in other people's heads. What is going on in other people's closets? What are they like? It's that dramatic question. Who is this person and who are they really? Because see who they're trying to present as, but who are they really? I mean, that, that, that's what we're really interested in when we're looking at stories on on Instagram. The person showing us their wardrobe might think that they're presenting in one way. But generally, there, there's going to be a, a much more complex narrative going on in our heads as we're thinking, ooh, you know, <laughs> what do they think they're doing? And, you know, so, 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 the, so the judgment is, is often not what the kind of presenter is expecting mm. because we're curious and we want to see the kind of whole picture that we – rather than the one that's simply being presented. And again, that's also storytelling. The character at the beginning presents in a certain way, and by the end of the story, we're going to know them a a whole lot better. Yeah, and I mean, people don't want the polished, perfect, totally successful person. That's not what they're interested in. And your novel, which I I started reading actually last night, uh, well, one of them, uh, (laughs) The the Hunger and the Howling of Killian Lone, which um, is described, the reason I downloaded it is described as part sinister fairy tale, part gothic horror, which is totally down my street. (laughs) So, but that's interesting because that immediately says something about you, which people just didn't know five you know three minutes ago is that you've written this type of book and I also write this type of book so I get you (laughs) but it's interesting because and again with people writing romance or sex or violence and these are dark things and we read in order to vicariously experience it but how as writers do we incorporate the darker side of ourselves without suffering from this fear of judgment or fear of exposure or self-censorship and all these things that make us want to hide the darker side well I think that's one of the gifts of fiction isn't it really that you kind of tend to hide behind um that you know you kind of hide behind the characters that you're writing when i wrote that novel i, I really didn't think it was about me at all i didn't even notice that his name is mine just with one letter switched it didn't even occur <laughs> literally didn't occur to me that killian is william you know, <laughs> you know, until i finished the book and i think that's kind of what novelists are often doing is exploring their own problems and exploring their own worries and concerns and anxieties, but in a kind of safe way, because it's, it's in fiction. We, we, we can kind of run these simulations of what might happen if, if our worst fantasies came true in a kind of safe way. And that's partly why we go to stories in the first place, like evolutionarily kind of speaking, but one of the purposes of tribal gossip was to, you know, we tell stories and in, in hearing and understanding the stories and seeing how other people behave, uh, reacting to them, you're understanding how, how should I be living in the world? What What is good behavior in this place? And what is bad behavior? What kind of behavior is hailed as heroic? What kind of behavior is leading to people being punished? And, you know, how can I then apply that to my life? One of my favorite quotes about a story was by a radio producer whose name escapes me. And he said that every story is an answer to the question, how should I live my life? And I thought that was really really profound and a really like, sort of lovely way of putting it. And, and and I think that applies to writers as well. You're trying to work out, you're trying to w- work yourself out a bit, I think, in, in the process of, of writing and, and, and also in the stuff that you're reading. I, I think I noticed that people, especially these days, feel like they want to apologise in a way for if they're caught kind of reading books by people like them, as if it's sort of kind of cliquey and narrow-minded. But I think it's perfectly natural that women mostly read, if, if, you know, that women like to read books by women and working class people like to read books by working class people because, you know, 
they're more meaningful to us and where where you know where we are in the world. You know, I like reading mid-century American novels about middle-aged men, you know, having problems in their lives <laughs> because it because it because it because it, re- it resonates and, and you feel partly that you should apologise for reading lots of books about middle-aged men. But why? You know, it's I, I don't think that's something to apologise. I just think it's natural. Yeah, I, I must say most of my books have uh, main characters who are women in their you know late thirties, early forties doing yeah. doing cool There's things in the world. That, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that it's you know i think i think it's i think it's perfectly natural and actually it's, it's much more difficult to for you to suddenly try writing a charles Bukowski kind of character because it's like where would you begin and why, why, would, you, why would you even want to bother doing that i'd have you to know? drink I mean, a lot might, but... clearly yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and take a lot of drugs <laughs> exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah we don't want to go there but um no. no that's fascinating so we're almost out of time but i did want to ask you because as i mentioned at the, the beginning i've got the book in hardback and also audiobook which you narrated and it's it's really good i really enjoyed it you have a great oh, voice and a great attitude in it so but i'm interested because many people listening i've narrated some of my own non-fiction and many people listening are interested in that so how did you find that narration process and and any tips oh i found it really hard i don't know how you find it <laughs> it is uh, it's really hard work right yeah like i thought oh, this would be a fun few days <laughs> i think it was like two days or two or maybe a bit more i don't know i can't remember but it's really hard and two so i think that the first thing like very practical thing is that is that i, I was embarrassed because um on the first morning, the producer could hear my stomach rumbling and he kind of cut in and went, have you had breakfast, Will? And I went, no. Goes, Do you want to go and get yourself some breakfast from Sainsbury's? And I thought, oh, God. So I had to interrupt the session because my stomach was rumbling. <laughs> that was really embarrassing and unprofessional. Uh, so that was, I uh, have breakfast. <laughs> it's a very practical tip. But, but, but the other thing that I found worse was that, I, I don't know how you found it, but by the end of it, I hated my book. <laughs> I was like, I never want to see it again. I never want to hear it again. It's terrible. No one's going to like this. Like, I, I don't know what it is, but it's like, I, I really, really fell out of love with my book. It took me a while to get over it, <laughs> doing the audio narration. And I think I, I'm going to do my next book, but I, but I know now that it isn't just a really fun, because also you think, oh, I'm reading my book out. It's going to be, I'm going to be so proud. It's going to be, I'm going to feel really great about myself. But I found the opposite. <laughs> I found, you see all the flaws. Uh, you see all the problems. <laughs> but I'm interested, how do you other, because obviously I've re- reacted very positively. I love the audiobook. Have you had feedback from readers that have made you happier? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the audiobook's done really well. I mean, I don't know any specific figures, but I know that it was for, 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 for one day last month, it was the number one best selling book on Audible. Oh, wonderful. I know, which is like a bizarre. I mean, it was a, they, they were, publishers promoted it, so it wasn't like out of the blue. But still, it's a niche book, you know. So I, I was kind of baffled by that, but very pleased. And yes, I do know the audio book has done really well, which is why I know that I'm going to have to do the next one too. I can't get away with giving it to an actor, <laughs> but, but but yeah, so I'll definitely be doing it again. And, I, and maybe that will make me feel a bit better about it, <laughs> a bit better about it, because also you feel very self conscious. Like a, I don't know, I felt at times like I was. You, you worry, am I over-enunciating? Am I being like a like a really over-excitable Blue Peter presenter? <laughs> I quite like or, that, or, though. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to keep the energy up. I'm glad I did it in the end because it's been a really popular f- format. So, so mm. yeah. Mm, fantastic. So, well, what is the, is the next book a book for writers as well? Uh, no, the next book is is about status. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of, in the storybook about it, about how important status is to people. And, and, and in a way... Um, you can see st- stories as a kind of status, a game of status, really. Very often at the beginning of stories, you're, I mean, the protagonist is somehow low in status. 
there's always that bit in a detective inspector, you know, police procedural where they, the DI gets taken off the case, you know, like they're, they're, they're always, you know, being sort of pushed out. They learn through the kind of tr- the trials and errors of the plot to, to how to become heroic and win status. So, so I write about that in the storybook in, in that context. I'm sort of turning it into a full length book, which is going to be called The Status Game. And that's going to be hopefully published next year. Uh, well, I, I mean, writers are obsessed with status and ranking and... <laughs> I know. It's part of my the first book I read in my research was Alan de Botton's Status Anxiety. Oh, it's yeah. the only other book on status. So I thought, well, I'll read it and see what you come up with. Because I read it when it came out and I've forgotten it. It's mad. He seems to think that status is an invention of capitalism. And one of <laughs> one of his solutions, one of his suggestions, if you're suffering from status anxiety, is be like an artist, be a writer. <laughs> because because you know, if you think about the writers, they they live in these garrets and they weren't really worried about status. They were just be- happy being poor and writing. And I just thought you, have you ever met a writer? <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's not true. That Being is a writer so... is not the cure for status. Oh Absolutely no! Not. It's I mean, and and if you do want to be in your garret, it's a competitive as to how poor you can be. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that is the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Look how poor and windy my 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 garret is much windier than your garret. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Okay. So uh, tell people where they can find you and the books and everything you do online, including your courses. Oh, um, so the best thing to do is to go to just my website, willstore.com, W-I-L-L-S-T-O-R-R, willstore.com, or thescienceofstoryselling.com, which has all the course information. Fantastic. And some YouTube videos, some quick start YouTube videos. So if some of the stuff we've been talking about sounds useful, I've got like a five-step guide to beginning using these techniques about specific characters and how to build a a plot. And I specifically use that Jaws plot in the video as well. So that kind of five-step plot which lots of these lots of sort of genre books and bestsellers often have fantastic well thanks so much for your time will that was great yeah thanks for your questions i really enjoyed it thank you So I hope you found the interview with Will useful this week. I definitely had an aha moment with the Jaws example for character flaw. And I highly recommend his book, The Science of Storytelling. It's definitely a different take on the whole story thing. And I know we are all story geeks. (laughs) So check that out. Next week, I'm talking about how to take your author career to the next level with Mark Dawson. Uh, I ask him about craft tips for the more established writer. (laughs) Clearly, this was basically I wanted to pick Mark's brain and you guys get to listen in. We ask about um, using your email list in a more effective way, pricing when you have multiple books like me, free first in series, how do you market wide ebooks when KU seems to dominate so much and more. Basically, I, yeah, I asked Mark all the questions I wanted to ask him and you get to listen in. Although I did throw in a question about what to do if you're just starting out, but it it definitely is interesting. So uh, you can join us next week for that. You can also listen in if you join us on the webinar uh, about six secrets to Amazon ad success, thecreativepen.com forward slash 11 June, 1 1 June. And uh, that is obviously on Thursday, 11th of June. Um, So links in the show notes. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. 
See you next time.